0: Good morning. Good morning. 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 Thank you. Good morning. Happy New Year. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds. Wednesday, January 6th, 2016, first Grand Rounds of the calendar year. I didn't run our slides that quickly. You probably saw that the code today is 15QF, and we will... Oh, thank you, Jeff. Um, and Abigail Horton and Susan Taylor from Child Life will be presenting psychosocial risk assessment in pediatrics next week. And tomorrow we have another intern recruitment open house day with breakfast starting at 745. We really truly are in the home stretch now. Three more dates. So let's finish strong as a faculty uh, and, and show our intern candidates how committed we are to them. So for our... Um, for our kudos this morning, I'm going to yield the floor, the podium, uh, to Steve Chapman, who has a special presentation
1: to make. So, good morning, everybody. So, I'm, I have a presentation to make on uh, behalf of the New Hampshire Pediatric Society. I'm vice president of the New Hampshire Pediatric Society, which is uh, the state AAP chapter. And the, the two main goals of the New Hampshire Pediatric Society are... Advocacy for children, um, and quality improvement. Um, so I, the recognition that I have to give today is the person who is largely responsible for the development of the pediatric, New, Ham- the New Hampshire Pediatric Practice Improvement Program. Um, we didn't have a quality improvement statewide program a few <laughs> years ago, and we do now. Um, this group has worked on... Um, immunization, uh, HPV uh, uh, rates, it's worked on developmental screenings, it's working on fluoride varnish rate improvement across the state. Um, She's handed it off, but I'd like to recognize her role in developing and getting this off the ground. Alison Holmes.
0: Steve and Allison. And, uh, and we continue our work with NHPIP. Uh, Sam House is uh, the new medical director. So thank you, Sam, taking over for Allison and Artis. So this morning's Ran Rounds is uh, delivered by one of our own Chad faculty, Dr. Jeffrey Lowe, who received his Doctor of Pharmacy from the University of Kentucky and completed his residency at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. He was um, It seems like he was there in Nebraska for for some time and and teaching and engaged in the residency um, and actually led a residency program here at DHMC for five years, June of 2006 to 2011. He is an instructor of pediatrics in the Geisel School of Medicine and adjunct assistant professor at the Department of Pharmacy Practice at the University of Connecticut. And in his roles and in his career, Jeff has taught um, significant coursework both in Nebraska and in Connecticut, 13 courses in pharmacy, and has published um, five publications in addition to at least 12 or 13 presentations over the years at our institution as well as Connecticut and Nebraska. And this morning is going to update an, us on an important aspect of our practice in pharmacy. So thanks, Jeff.
2: Excellent. I realized that if I have the lavalier mic and I have a remote, I can walk around while I'm giving this presentation and I can get steps, so uh, <laughs> this is good. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about um, the evolution of pharmacy uh, here in New Hampshire, and uh, my family actually has, uh, um, actually I have disclosures here, I forgot I had to insert this slide, I have no disclosures. Um, financial disclosures in the last 12 months um, I am going to be talking about pharmacy and pharmacists and of course I am a pharmacist so that's my one uh, conflict um, but uh, and we will be talking a little bit about um, off-label um, use of medications um, but uh, nothing extensive there. So. I'd like to talk about the improvements in pharmacy practice um, that have occurred during the 20th century, and a lot of them that um, have occurred here over a short period of time. Um, I'd like you to be able to endorse some of the um, improvements that we've made to the current medication use system uh, in order to provide safe medications for children here at Chad, and also to be able to evaluate further opportunities and be able to collaborate Um, with the pharmacists here on implementing those changes in order to make future improvements. So, as I was saying, um, I have a long family history um, of pharmacy here in the state, and this is actually Bell's Pharmacy down in Derry, New Hampshire. Um, Around the turn of the century, my great-grandfather apprenticed under Bell, uh, to become a pharmacist. Um, and eventually it became J.H. Lowe Druggist, um, which I guess didn't have a negative connotation at the time. Um, and uh, so this is actually my great grandfather. Of course, every pharmacy at that time not only had to have medications, but also um, a soda fountain. Um, <laughs> There was no regulations, I guess, about keeping the food totally separate from the medications. Um, And so the medications are actually here um, in all of these glass bottles. And um, my family still has a few of these uh, glass bottles that uh, contain the medications. At that point in time, Uh, The medications were all uh, custom-made. There weren't a lot of large commercial manufacturers. And uh, there's also recipe books that the um, local physicians would say, oh, I want to include this or I want to include that. Um, And they would make uh, various compounds uh, based off that. Um, Of course, the active ingredient in a lot of these um, was that they were elixirs, and so the alcohol was probably uh, one of the major components for a lot of these medications. Uh, The store was eventually taken over by my grandfather. This is uh, during the 40s, and of course there were updates, but it still had a uh, soda fountain at that time. Eventually, uh, the story comes here to Dartmouth, and um, my father also uh, became a pharmacist um, and uh, came up to uh, Dartmouth in 65 and uh, worked at the uh, old hospital. He was the first one to go into hospital practice. Um, it was very different back then, um, but some of the things were still the same. This was actually um, where a lot of the medications were stored um, in these uh, little plastic bins, and uh, we still have some of those today in some of our systems. Um, They did a cart fill of sorts where uh, they would prepare the medications that were going to go out to the various nursing units um, and would put those in all of these bins and they exchanged them for patients. Um, They lacked a lot of technology at the time, so, uh, of course, they had a nice typewriter. um, But their drug distribution system, one of the things that they used was a pneumatic tube system, um, and that's right behind the typewriter here, and we still use a pneumatic tube system today. Um, Then, of course, we have the uh, nursing unit. Um, These were where the medications were delivered to. Of course, the nurse prepared a lot of the medications, um, either at the med room or at the bedside. Um, But interestingly enough, they used a paper MAR, and it's too small to see the uh, writing on the MAR itself. Um, But uh, my father, in conjunction with um, one of the unit leaders um, uh, at the time, designed a seven-day MAR so people could see a broader view of what medications were going to be utilized. And that form was reprinted several times over the years um, and was still actually in use up until 2011 uh, when we went live with EDH. Um, We didn't have any uh, Pyxis or Accudose machines at that time. Um, So the controlled substances were locked in these metal cabinets, um, available for use. And eventually, um, I come into the picture, um, which (laughs) I think uh, my dad told me I was there in blue, although we didn't do back to sleep, I guess, back then. Um, And... uh, I had uh, great care uh, when I was here, uh, thanks to uh, Dr. Wazicki, um and Dr. Boyle at the time. But eventually, my story comes back here to uh, Dartmouth about 15 years ago. And by that point in time, um, there's a new hospital. And at that time, there seems to be a lot more technology. When, we, when I came into the pharmacy, um, we had medications, instead of being in little drawers, they were all barcoded. Um, we had a robot that would be able to, more accurately than a human, pick medications, dispense the correct one. Um, and at that point, I thought, yes, this place really has all these systems together. Um, but there were still large gaps for Chad. And the robot does very well for tablets, Um, but as you know, most of the medications that we're giving to our patients aren't tablets here in the hospital. Um, And so the vast majority of our products are injectable products. Um, We also use a lot of liquids in pediatrics. And so about 20% were uh, oral liquids. And at the time that I came, the nurses were mixing all of almost all of the injectables. Um, The pharmacy was mixing chemotherapy, um, and so that was no longer being made on the floor. Um, The oral liquids, we were dispensing bulk bottles um, to the floor. Um, Not only did that contribute to a lot of waste, there was a lot of potential for error um, or inconsistency to occur there. And so um, one of the first things that uh, needed to be done is uh, implement a pharmacy IV admixture. Um, and as I looked uh, back through my slides from when we implemented it, this was one of the ones that uh, was in there. So it wasn't a very exciting topic to talk about, um, but it was necessary. And one of the things that we had to do was change the way that nursing made the medication drips. Um, and <laughs> This was me at the time uh, when I told people that we had to get rid of the Rule of Six. Um, Fortunately, Joint Commission also endorsed that we needed to get rid of the Rule of Six, and so I shifted some of the blame onto them at the time. Um, But we also developed a lot of tools to assist nurses in making that transition. Um, Several of you have seen these charts that we made um, that included how people were going to mix up the new drips, um, included, at this time, we didn't have smart pump technology. Um, everything was still in mLs per hour. And so we developed these charts to allow people to transition. Well, if I go away from the rule of six, how will I know how fast to run my drip? Can Sorry. the rule of six? Is? Oh. <laughs> um, and so... There was a mathematical formula that if you took six times the uh, weight of the child and put that in 100 mLs of fluid, then if you ran the fluid at one mL an hour, you were giving one mic per kilo per minute. (laughs) And the math all worked out, but it meant everybody had a different concentration And each time the drug was made, it could be dependent on a weight change of the child. Um, It made it impossible to um, go to standard formulas. So like this dopamine is commercially made, um, doesn't require us to mix it, manipulate it, reduces the errors. Um, And so fortunately that's now gone the way of the dinosaur and has for about 15 years. Um, There were a lot of other products, though, that we didn't um, make at that time. And so um, we started to implement IV admixture for other products. And by 2007, about 76% of the medications that were being administered to Chad were then made in a sterile environment, were made by the pharmacy. Some of the 25% that we haven't been able to uh, eliminate are controlled substances that are prepared right at the time of administration. Um, Pediatric patients, of course, needing individualized doses, and those doses are measured up right before administration. We also needed to address the large uh, bulk containers for oral liquids. Um, Adults use... um, oftentimes something called unit of use. And uh, people use unit of use and the term unit dose interchangeably. Um, With adults, it's often the same thing. It may be 25 milligrams is in the packet, but their dose is also 25 milligrams. Um, With pediatrics, though, we may need to measure out some amount. And for neonates, the unit of use adult package may have ten times the appropriate dose. And so one of the things that we implemented by 2008 was having the pharmacy draw up all of the um, patient-specific medication uh, doses, and the pharmacy now makes about 36,000 doses a year um, that are patient-specific. And this has drastically reduced the amount of waste um, in the system as well. By 2009, um, I became uh, embedded in the clinical transformation process. Um, And uh, I was kind of concerned at that time. Um, Many may remember the um, pediatrics article that came out um, shortly before we transitioned our electronic health record um, about CPOE in a pediatric hospital. And uh, this was um, in Pittsburgh, where they adopted a commercial vendor um, for CPOE, and they looked at the mortality uh, pre- and post-implementation and saw a rise in mortality um, post-implementation. They weren't able to directly attribute what the cause was of this increase in mortality, Um, But there was definitely concern about how do we do this? How do we do this safely? And there were a number of opportunities um, that um, I had as working with the project in order to try and implement some things that would be safe for Chad. And one of the things um, that I want to highlight is we were able to design some display choices that change based off the age of the child um, many of you may not even realize that this happens in the background um, unless you're doing a lot of ordering you may not notice that hey wait a minute it looked different when I was ordering something for this patient or it looks different for adults um, the adult entry is here down at the bottom and with the adults when they um, their build, they wanted things to be very straightforward, easy for providers. If they could default a dose so that it was one click and ready to prescribe, um, they tried to do that. And so they put a lot of the common doses in as a default so that providers didn't need to change them if they wanted to use what the most common doses were. Um, We definitely didn't think that that was safe for children. Um, We wanted providers to consciously choose what dose they were gonna be using. And so whenever you pull up a dose for a child, you get these stop signs. Um, But we were also able to make it different for different age groups. So neonates will get different dose suggestions, different dosing frequency buttons um, than older pediatric patients. You'll notice by the time in the neonate, they aren't even able to order a fixed dose. Um, A pediatric patient may be 15, and they may be able to use the um, adult-sized doses, and so those start to be included as dose button options for them. We also wanted people to know when we didn't include dose buttons, and so we developed a generic warning to say that default dosing information isn't configured for certain medications. So the providers weren't surprised that, wait a minute, um, I'm trying to do something that would only be appropriate for adults. We also have a lot of different medications. Um, We had to build out about 3,000 different entries um, in the build of EDH, and not all of those are going to be appropriate for all different patients. Uh, some of the things that we do differently for adults is a lot of pre bags, which may be appropriate if that's the dose that a uh, pediatric patient is going to be getting. Um, but oftentimes, we're going to be making a custom uh, solution in our IV room. When pharmacists were doing all of the order entry prior to CPOE, pharmacists knew which one of these seven options in order to pick. Um, And we were very concerned that we were going to see an increase in errors because prescribers weren't used to picking which ones. Um, And so we tried to make entries as simple as possible. And in the background in EDH, it's going to switch to what the most appropriate um, product is. And so when you select oral suspension, if that oral suspension is going to one of our pediatric patients, the patient-specific unit dose medication is drawn up and sent to the patient. If it's an adult, they may still get a bulk bottle um, of these products. The IV products, also, there's different concentrations that are sent for pediatric patients, as opposed to the concentrations that adults may use. I then transitioned um, to working on smart pumps. And we now use a lot of smart pump technology, um, and this is able to uh, provide a level of safety uh, just before the nurse goes to administer many medication products. Um, The major workhorse that we uh, use in pediatrics is the syringe pumps, and we're able to set both hard limits as well as soft warning limits to say this may a dose may exceed um, what's appropriate in certain patient populations. Um, we also um, played a role in developing the library for the Sigma, which is used for large volume. Um, there's a different library for uh, PCA pumps, and um, ICN um, Transport even uses yet another pump with another drug library. Um, so there are a lot of different systems for um, medication use, and I think in the next um, couple weeks we'll be meeting um, to develop a new library for MRI uh, use for pediatric patients, um, as well as for um, older uh, pediatric patients transported through DART. Well, the drug library and those limits um, are only effective if people are utilizing the uh, drug library software. And so one of the things that we uh, did early on as we implemented these was take a look and um, the compliance with, (laughs) yeah, there's a little bit of a drop there. Uh, (laughs) So one of the things that um, we did was we asked for feedback and um, the nurses who were using the pump, very busy, And it wasn't in their routine to say, oh, I had to go into basic mode. I wasn't able to use the drug library. I need to tell Jeff about this so that we can look and address this. Um, And so one of the things that we did in, in conjunction with nursing is trying to do active surveillance. And one of the new things that the pumps allowed for is that the pumps were wireless. And so in real time, we could take a look and see what pumps were used, what pumps were used in basic mode, and then we could figure out which patients those pumps were used on and go back to the nurse who had that patient at the end of the shift and say, we saw you went into basic mode. Um, Tell us what problems you were having with the pump. How can we address this? And we got much better feedback. the pump actually has a little wireless signal and it glows blue when um, it's talking to our wireless network. One of the reps for the company said that that was actually a camera taking a picture of the nurse when they go into <laughs> basic mode. Um, and it worked because after we did uh, several months of that, um, now people, when they have to go into basic mode, send an email. I know you're going to hear about it anyway, so <laughs> let me tell you in advance. We had to go into basic mode. This is what we we had to do. Um, now we we consistently are up around 95% um, compliance with usage of the drug library. Um, we did have one little dip again in in September, um, but that was also um, a, a very low usage in, in the PICU, and so. Um, just 20 infusions of intermittent infusions can cause a dip like that. And so um, one patient who's on a drug that isn't in the library three times a day can totally crash the, uh, the data there. So that's why we look at the, the trends over a longer period of time, too. There's many um, positive outcomes, though, that uh, this technology has allowed us to be able to do. And so it's prevented errors in misprogramming high doses as well as low doses, um, programming things like antibiotics to run too slow, um, where instead of running over 10 minutes, uh, it was programmed to run over 10 hours. um, And so the antibiotic wouldn't get in um, uh, if the pump hadn't caught that error. Other large-scale uh, safety implementations um, have been the advent of uh, barcode med administration, um, preventing errors uh, right at the time of administration. It also allowed the pharmacy to uh, utilize barcode technology so that we're checking products using barcodes as we dispense and verify products. And we also started to use Um, Instead of the little plastic filing, um, we now have an inventory system um, uh, called our Med Carousel that allows us to keep better track of the stock um, and um, inventory levels for various products. We still use a lot of technology. Uh, This is actually the technology in our IV hood that's used to uh, make TPN. Um, Looks like a lot of spaghetti there, but uh, a lot of components go into TPN. We also established a pediatric pharmacy and therapeutics committee. Um, This committee uh, has allowed us to have a group of pediatricians, nurses, and pharmacists evaluate uh, policies specific for CHAT as well as evaluate medications that are going to predominantly be used in CHAD um, and update our formulary to include those medications. Uh, One of the recent things um, in pediatric pharmacy is the establishment of board certification. Um, I've been working with the pediatric pharmacy advocacy group um, our National Pediatric Pharmacy Association um, for the past 10 years. And we've been um, advocating for a while to recognize pediatric pharmacy as a specialty area. Um, be careful what you wish for. As we got it finally approved, then I realized, oh, I got to sit for this exam. <laughs> um, but fortunately, uh, uh, sat for it and passed it this fall. So a lot of the work that's been done uh, in collaboration with a lot of people over the last 15 years um, has been about risk reduction. Um, I I, uh, consciously left off the word um, safety because oftentimes that... um, implies that you can make a system totally safe. And one of the things that I hope you're seeing is that as we've evolved, the system has become more and more complex. um, And complexity is very difficult um, to safeguard. When there are only a few steps, um, it is very easy to see where everything interacts together as the systems have become more and more complex, it's taken a uh, detective, oftentimes, to figure out where various steps have gone wrong. Um, And so um, some of you know that um, my boys have gotten me into rock climbing, and um, uh, one of the things that the focus is on is rock climbing is an inherently dangerous um, uh, sport, just as football or soccer or other sports, but how do you reduce the risk? Um, And so a lot of the things that uh, we do in climbing with communication, with safety checks, um, have a direct relationship um, to the types of things that I've worked on here. And so there's been many advancements um, through prescribing safety uh, increases in um, uh, technology with CPOE, development of order sets. Um, We've made changes to dispensing with the adoption of standard concentrations, uh, the entire IV admixture program in the pharmacy, uh, unit dose pediatric oral syringes and barcode uh, dispense verification have made the dispensing process um, better, and then also the administration process. The utilization of an electronic MAR um, that's tied into the prescribing and the pharmacy system makes for communication for everybody to be on the same page. The infusion pump, uh, drug libraries, and Barcode Med Administration have also um, reduced the risk for our patients. So, where are the future directions um, that we're going to go uh, to, and what are we going to look at next? Um, some of the things that are in the pipeline, um, one of the directions that the uh, pharmacy Um, is going to is an increasing use of automated dispensing cabinets. Um, Making medications uh, available at the nursing unit, reducing the amount of medications that have to come from the central pharmacy. Um, But I don't think this one, while um, it will probably be implemented throughout the hospital more broadly in the next year, A lot of it probably won't impact um, CHAD, because a lot of the medications, as we discussed earlier, are the patient-specific now, oral liquids up here, the injectable products that are coming from the IV room. And so there are very few products um, that aren't already available up there um, that would perhaps be dispensed from these cabinets.
3: Jeff, do you think those cabinets will free up pharmacists to spend more time with the pediatric kind Mm -hmm. so that, Because part of it is delays. So I'm wondering if having the pharmacists not have to work so much on the adult meds Mm
2: -hmm. may be (laughs) Um, I I think it's it's probably going to be a wash time-wise because there are other... A lot of it um, actually falls to our technicians in terms of um, preparing and um, uh, getting those medications ready to then be able to be sent. There's some uh, time involved in the pharmacy in verification of those, um, but it will take a uh, more technician time as they're stocking more cabinets, more medications being stored uh, locally on the units. Um, but it will make the medication available faster once verified, and, and that's where um, the real advantage is. Like I said in one of those early slides looking at the 70s with the pneumatic tube system, we're still using the same system to get medications from point A to point B. Um, If we could use some type of Star Trek teleporter, that would be a lot better. Um, But the next next best thing is probably to have certain medications um, that are of use for adults. They're already in the form that we're going to deliver to the adult units, already store them on the adult units. And um, so that will make a, a large difference for those units.
3: Um, what about outpatient? Are you thinking of working within that realm as well to try to streamline? And I mean, the RP doesn't have a Texas.
2: Um, the kind of that we're doing. The, <laughs> one of the things that I, I want to do at the end is um, also take more ideas for uh, collaboration. So the, there definitely can be. Uh, Future projects that we start to take a look at.: um. Sorry, I just want to say from a, a nursing and a,
0: and a patient perspective, um, that the pharmacy, they are the most helpful, nice people I've ever met. And, and, you know on you. a positive note, and maybe that's not always <laughs> said. but you know, having gone there you know as an outpatient and even calling inpatient as a nurse, working here, The the pharmacy staff
1: is really helpful and lovely, the nicest that I've met
2: anywhere. Well, thank you very much. I have a a few more uh, slides to get through in in the time that I have, and then I'll open it up for for some more questions. Um, One of the opportunities that I I think we have is, we we are still relying on um, nurses with our infusion devices to punch buttons um, that is already in the electronic system. So we're asking them to transcribe what is on the screen to program a pump. Um, And uh, one of the opportunities as we start to take a look at new pumps is this Internet of Things where uh, pumps will talk to the electronic health record and be able to Uh, just show a confirmation screen for the nurse for them to verify that yes the correct information came across but eliminate some of the programming errors that we've seen in the past Um, we may also uh, utilize um, technology this is a IV producing robot Um, they uh, most likely will not be uh, small enough that these will be deployed to the the units Um, But in the future, the pharmacy may adopt some of these um, in order to produce uh, high-volume medications in a sterile cabinet um, very reliably uh, without having um, humans involved in the physical manipulation of producing these products. We also um, are starting to have our pharmacists involved in medication rec. Um, And uh, since November, um, we've had an expansion of the hours that um, uh, we've had pediatric pharmacists available for Chad, um, and we um, have been reconciling some of the medications um, on admission. We still find several um, opportunities uh, for improvement with medication lists. Um, In the last week, um, the pharmacists have um, uh, reviewed the med list for 27 of the inpatients and found at least one um, opportunity for um, correction on 18 of those patients. So about 2 thirds of the patients we're seeing medication lists are outdated. Um, There was one that had a remarkable 32 different updates that uh, the pharmacist made um, between things that the patient was no longer taking, was still in the record, doses, instructions, everything that needed to be updated. And so um, I think this is a huge um, opportunity that um, as we move forward, um, pharmacy will be more involved in And hopefully not just on admission, but also um, involved with reconciliation on discharge, um, patient counseling to make sure that they understand how to take their medications, um, as well as a handoff to their primary medical home um, so that there's clear communication about the medications um, that were started or changed in the hospital. There are a few Challenges that I wanted to bring up. Um, I think this one is uh, fairly well known. Um, it's been impacting us for a number of years now that we've seen um, generics that um, the old paradigm, or at least for a little while, was now Walmart's giving them all for $4. It wasn't exactly all generics that Walmart was giving for $4. Um, But now there's a number of generic, um, and many have been in the news at least in the last couple months, um, where companies have become single source and dramatically jacked up the price. And we've seen that again and again with a lot of injectable products, Um, but it's also happening with several oral products as well um, that fall to single manufacturers or very little competition. Um, And so We're going to need better tools. And one of the things that um, we'll be doing is um, collaborating on some um, cost and reporting uh, capability to be able to better monitor, as these changes occur, where are there, perhaps, opportunities to switch prescribing because of what's available in the marketplace. and the other uh, thing that I think could impact is um, we know in pediatrics about therapeutic orphans and um, for a long time there was a lack of clinical testing and appropriate formulations for pediatrics. Um, I think one of the things that is starting to come down the pike, um, as I looked at the disclosure slide in, People talk about, well, obviously, if it's pediatrics, we're going to talk about off-label use of medications. As we start to take a look at the new medications that are coming out, um, with the cost that they are coming out for, um, insurance companies and payers are not going to pay for off-label usage. And what is that going to mean, um, sometimes for adults um, with uh, rare conditions, but also for pediatrics if the labeled indication doesn't exactly meet the clinical condition of that patient. Are we going to be able to use um, these medications? And we're seeing a dramatic rise in um, diverting new pharmaceuticals that are very expensive, sometimes $100,000, $200,000 $100,000, $200,000 a year um, for maintenance medications for chronic condition. And um, will we be able to utilize these medications because they're being um, directed towards specialty pharmacies that are really, I think, primarily about ensuring that insurance coverage and everything is walked through all the steps to maximize um, company revenue more so than making sure that it's in the hands of all the patients who could benefit. I want to acknowledge uh, several people who are in the crowd today um, who have collaborated with me over the years. Um, very early on, Bill Edwards um, and the um, uh, ICN um, early work with Lori Hogden Um, and Karen McCoy, uh, Sam Casella, um, Sarah Chaffee, um, and Bridget Mudge on medication safety um, issues and quality improvement projects. Um, And I also want to thank the CHAD pharmacists. Um, These are the folks that day in, day out are taking care of um, our pediatric patients in CHAD. Um, and allow me the opportunity to um, focus on some of these quality improvements um, because I know they're holding down the fort. So thank you very much.
3: Um, I'm curious about the, the phenomenon of drug shortages, and I remember through training it was never an issue, and now we have drug shortages of like key medications that have very few replacements and I'm wondering what's driving that.
2: And I think some of that is the cost increase seeing with generics as well. Um, There's been a, for a long time, there was a lot of market competition in generics. Um, And generics have really undergone a lot of consolidation in the marketplace. And so while there may be five companies that vie to make a generic of the brand new drug coming off patent. The drug that came off patent in the 1980s, 1970s, or before, nobody's competing for that anymore. And we've driven down the price such that if I have a manufacturing facility that can make sterile products, do I want to make the new one that's coming off patent and have my chemist figure that one out and I can have a 50% margin as that one comes off patent or I have probably very little margin if any on making generic ferrosamide. and so each company is individual they just decide okay I'm going to stop making that well, they may have supplied 30% of the U.S. market in furosemide. Um And I'm not implying that we have a ferrosamide shortage at the moment. <laughs> uh, don't go buying ferrosamide or ordering it when you get back to the floor. Um, but uh, because of that, and they're all independent companies, it, it has meant that the remaining players may not be able to pick up the slack um, and we've seen an awful lot of that over the last five years.
4: Yeah, yeah, first, I'd like to return the gratitude here to, uh, for
5: working with you, Jeff. It's, um, it's really been terrific. You've been such an advocate for safety and really thoughtful application of solutions for uh, really our complex small babies. So thank you for that. My question is one, you've spent a lot of time talking about technological approaches to safety, and I wonder where you are with the personal piece, which is having pharmacists sort of part of the team rounding on patients when they're in the evolution of therapeutic decision making and so forth. Obviously a lot of our rounds uh, aren't really pertinent to the pharmacist being there. And there's an issue of how to prioritize the time to make it efficient and cost effective. But it seems that we're still often missing that piece of, of, of collaborative advice on the front line t- for the best choice of uh, therapeutic, therapeutic options and safest choice. So what, what are your thoughts about where to put that in the sort of prioritization of um, approaches to safety?
2: And, and I think, um, that is one of the next um, areas to continue to improve. We, we now have uh, very robust on um, pediatrics, um, continue to um, provide um, uh, intermittent on ICN and PICU, and I think the next um, opportunity is to expand to full-time um, in those areas and to advocate for that. Um, and uh, because I think we see a lot of things with pediatrics um, that we're able to head off right at the time of decision making. <sighs>
3: Thanks, Jeff. I really appreciate this. I think um, I was talking to Steve earlier. I don't remember the last time I heard a talk by a pharmacist, so I really thank you for coming and sharing your expertise with us. Two questions. One, obviously I work in outpatient medicine, and to echo what Donna said, is there an equivalent push for safety and quality in the outpatient setting? You've been such a strong advocate in the inpatient setting, and I would love to see some of the work that you've been able to do there translate to the outpatient setting. That's question one. And the second question is, um, in terms of safety, I have a lot of, how shall I put it, very large but very young children. And when I start to order for them, I wind up without a mechanism for safety. Suddenly, they're getting 35 cc's TID of a medication, which is in uh, way above the adult limit of whatever drug I'm prescribing. And I'm wondering, um, uh, from your standpoint, how to make that safe for our obese or overweight kids to make sure they're getting the appropriate dosing, or if there's even any literature to support um, the milligram per kilogram dosing versus just getting up to the upper limit of adult dosing?
2: Um, I think the first question is um, I I would love to collaborate on the outpatient side um, and um, develop some, uh, um, some more tools on that side Um, And perhaps we can meet sometime and and discuss where there's opportunities to collaborate there. Um, I I don't know that we have anything established right now that's really um, directed at that, um, at least in pediatrics at this point. Um, I think the other piece is, um, and I didn't go into it here, um, is dose limits. Um, and starting to implement some of that stuff, um, there was a conscious decision that the noise was so great um, to not implement it in EDH. Um, And uh, we actually looked at one point in time after an event of, oh, wait a minute, this is turned off, should we turn it on? And we prospectively went through hundreds of orders Um, and then sat down um, with providers to say, okay, what of these alerts that triggered on this group of 500 patients, which ones are clinically significant? And the number was zero. (laughs) So the problem is the noise to signal ratio right now with dose commercial off the shelf uh, software is is so low um, that it really makes it difficult. Um, but I think that there's definitely opportunity with some of our high-alert medications to start to implement some of that, um, and there are some tools available in EDH to help us um, do that, and hopefully over time across the board we would be able to uh, implement some type of dose-checking software that may help with that. Yeah, this, this is great, Jeff, but I, I
4: really uh, think this is- I compliment the people who are running right around now for getting this on the schedule. We are, We gotta keep doing this sort of thing. And your presence here is very important. Let me push a little bit on, on uh, your very helpful emphasis upon the economics and the dynamics. Uh, to get the issue out, it's big pharma uh, and what's going on. Um, when I get out of the pharmacy, there's a sign down there that says we will prescribe uh, Generics, unless advised otherwise, which is which is great. But when I go out into the uh, pharmacy, uh, I don't know about down here, but elsewhere, Claritin costs you like 95 for six tablets or something like that, put up in a big package with six little tablets inside. And you've used the word robust, which I think is great, uh, uh, related to quality improvements. So how robust is our program uh, within the pediatric population to educate our families about what the blue blazes is going on uh, with something that seems to me to be pretty much out of control. Perhaps more so on the outpatient basis, but I would suspect, or in fact I know, that that the hospital has an incentive to maximize its cash flow uh, with uh, so forth and so on. you're a pretty experienced guy and uh, really thought a lot about this. What, what, what's your feeling about how, how robust is our program? Can you uh, advise me on that? I,
2: I think that um, there's a lot of opportunity for us to advocate more in terms of what could be done on a policy level in order to address the financials um i i i don't I, frankly i read i listen to a lot of financial information about drugs and the companies and and health care and the direction and i'm not sure how to fix it <laughs> um, I mean, I, I think that um, you're absolutely right that the, I'm concerned about the costs being unsustainable. Um, we need to provide value um, and we need to figure out what that value is. Um, but in terms of how, what The path forward in that arena is going to be. Even if we had, okay, here is the magic bullet for it, I don't know whether we're politically ready for that as well. Um, So it's going to take a while.
1: One of our biggest issues in cardiology is
3: compounding. And I think it's a big topic that needs to be addressed here at a children's hospital that doesn't compound on the outpatient side. So I guess I'm giving more, you more input than questions. <laughs> I and mean, we're struggling with pharmacies to compound that may not be qualified to compound. You We've know, had incidences where compounded meds are less potent than other pharmacies who compound. There's no standardization there. It's a big safety issue for us in cardiology.
2: I I agree. <laughs> um and
5: it's
3: also and I was like comp- and then,
2: and I think that there there may be future opportunities for collaboration um <laughs> in the past um the outpatient pharmacy and the inpatient pharmacy have been different business divisions. Um, And in the last uh, six to nine months, those have come together under one VP of pharmacy. And so I think there may be some more uh, lines of communication open that we may be able to advocate for services. Yes. I'll be
4: looking for collaborators.
1: After a few we'll have a great day. Thank you. Thank you.